the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. Well, on the program today, a real treat as we are joined by the senior pastor of North Creek Church in Walnut Creek and speaker on Walk Through the Word, heard Monday through Friday at 4.30 p.m. on KFAX. A delight to have with us back microphone side, Pastor Kent Dresdo. And Dr. Dresdo, good to see you again. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. We've been getting good reports about Walk Through the Word, and uh, again, delight to have you on board. Give us a little bit of a sense for perhaps listeners that are brand new and and wondering what your new program is all about, kind of the, the overall thrust of the message that you're hoping to convey to listeners each day. Yeah, you bet, Craig. Sure. Really, the essence of the program and our heart for it would be exactly what's stated in the title of the program. We just want to be able to provide a venue for folks to be able to walk with us through the word. That's what we do as a church. That's what we love as a church family, church body, is just having the the privilege of opening God's word and hearing God speak to us, lead us, guide us, love us, shepherd us in that way. And I, I really hope, Craig, that that what we want to be about as a local church is what ends up kind of being communicated to listeners all over the Bay Area, that we would love to invite them to walk with us through the Word of God and, and see how it is that we might be able to love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength more and more, and then how that translates straight into life practically, to love our neighbor, to love each other uh, more and more and more. So that's really the essence of, I hope, what we're trying to do with the radio broadcast, as well as what we're trying to do, I know, on the local church side, too. Is your sense the desire to hopefully help people better understand the Word and its daily application so that it kind of moves from being, uh, how should I put this politely, the decoration on the coffee table or something that we occasionally will quote from if we want to impress our friends or seem to be super spiritual. But I think there's a sense that maybe it's like Dad on Christmas morning, you're opening the gifts, and here comes the new fancy gadget that you've bought your son or daughter, so Dad's going to be the hero and assemble it together. The first thing we do is we toss aside the directions, <laughs> take out the screwdriver, and before you know it, by the time we're done, we either have many parts left over or it doesn't work. And I'm wondering yes. if there are a lot of believers that take the same approach to life, that, well... There's cognizant acknowledgement of Scripture, the sense of seeing it as sort of the, the day-to-day user's manual for getting through life and marriage and raising families and all of that, that sadly, it's just that coffee table decoration that I mentioned a moment ago. Yeah, that's right, Craig. And that's really our desire is to have folks be able to engage with God's Word in a way that they can understand for themselves and then be able to apply for themselves, right? And um, and none of us are meant to live in a vacuum. We're, we're meant to live in fellowship with one another and and help each other understand God's Word more and what God would want from our lives and, and how it is that we can love and serve Him uh, better. And none of us are in a place where we've arrived, you know, in our Christian life and walk. And so, uh, well, hopefully none of us think that, right? And so we just want to be able to to join people with where the Lord has them, in, in their life, understanding that all of us have challenges, all of us have struggles and, and trials, difficulties, strains. Um, we're battling with our flesh and sin. I get that. And then look to God, right? Look to God and say, God, how how is it that we can navigate through life with what you've presented to us in a way that honors you in a way that really gives joy to us, right? I mean, walking um, in the word gives joy uh, as well as life. And so, man, I want to make sure we, we make that a focus too. I hope that comes through that. There, yes, the Lord has um, marked out a path for us practically, but that can be pursued with joy and, um, and in a way that's life giving, not life draining. And so praise the Lord for the, for the joy that comes from the word too, even as we're trying to figure out how to, like you said, with all that God has presented to us in our life, uh, marriages, families with kids, jobs that seem like there's challenges every day. Um, 
how do we live for the Lord and how do we love the Lord in the midst of all that? Yeah. What a, what a great pursuit, right? What a joy to pursue that together and to pursue Christ together and all that. That's really what we're trying to have folks understand as they plug into the program day by day, week by week, month by month. Let me ask a tough question here. Um, do you see in, in your ministry and the time that you spend with parishioners and, and, and engaged in, of course, preaching from the pulpit and so forth, a, a correlation between the struggles that individuals go through, the problems that they have, and perhaps a direct correlation to a, le- a level of um, biblical illiteracy in their life? And I'm trying to choose my words wisely here because I don't want to offend anybody. But I yeah. just have to wonder, you know, sometimes we hear people make ridiculous pronouncements or statements, even those oftentimes in the public arena that will make proclamations about being Christians or, or even identifying as evangelicals. And then you see some of their behavior and the words out of your their mouths, and you think there seems to be a fundamental disconnect here. And I just wonder overall, how much of this is directly relatable to a degree of biblical illiteracy? Yeah. Oh, I think that's one of the one of the fundamental reasons why people are so confused today with the the pace of things coming at uh God's people and and really the pace of things that are coming at people just in general today it's it's a bit of a blur right it's i don't know that anybody would say that they have a a, a ton of clarity with all the different just blurring issues coming at us uh from all angles which is why we do need to get back to the simple truth of the scripture right there is the Bible says that there's clarity and simplicity in the sufficiency of itself to, to bring um, salvation to the soul and sanctification to the believer. And, and really viewed that way, we can unclutter uh, our lives and just live a simple, God-pleasing, joy-filled life uh, for Christ. And so, yeah, I think you're right. How do we move the Bible off of the coffee table and and into people's minds and hearts and lives uh, it's by helping them see the simplicity and the clarity and the life transforming power of the word of God. And when they, when they, when they catch that for themselves, when they see that for themselves, um, I think that that begins to build its own momentum. Now, now the word of God, like Proverbs two says, like I just read yesterday in my own time in the word that God's word becomes a treasure. It's a treasure. And we seek after it with all of our heart. And that's when we see the, the word do the work right by the spirit's power to transform a life. And, and Craig, would you say that the uncluttering, another word for that biblically would be just, it brings peace. It brings peace. Uh, the Holy spirit brings peace as he brings comfort to us through the word. And, um, and man, do we need that in today's day and age? That's just so confused and so supercharged with animus and conflict, right? Well, and, and when the enemy is coming at you with a fire hose of lies and confusion and, and, you know, really, none of this is a surprise. It, it all goes back to kind of a John ten ten thing. He's he's out to to seek like a roaring lion, whom he may devour and destroy. I mean, that's the enemy's stated purpose. And I and I and I think maybe one of the bigger challenges that a lot of believers have in that struggle, as the enemy comes at you with that fire hose of confusion and doubt and 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 all of that, um, is maybe Scripture becomes for a lot of people the fallback position, meaning where we just got the news that a spouse has been diagnosed with cancer, that a child is dealing with a, a, a drug abuse problem, what, whatever calamity it might be, and we go to that fallback position of going to the Word or going to pray instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to use the Word to lead us every day, it's the fallback position. And I wonder if that winds up complicating things and allows yeah. maybe the doorway for the enemy to cast doubt and take advantage of us because we have not study to show ourselves approved. Do you think that's true? For sure. For sure. Yeah. The the normal operation of the word of God in the life of the believer is that we feed on the word, right? Um, his, the, his words are the words of life. They give life to us, eternal life, uh, but also spiritual vitality. And so when we don't feed on the word of God for ourselves, we starve ourselves. And then a crisis hits, Craig, of any different kind of magnitude, or even an attack comes from the world or from the enemy and all of a sudden, we, we don't have the spiritual strength or stamina to persevere under trial, right? So so what we like to tell our folks is the time to, to feed on God's word is like you would in any given diet. You just, 
you feed slowly over time, you change your diet slowly over time, and that intake is going to lead to strength, which can then be spent in times of duress or trial or, or struggle or strain. And so <clears throat> it also helps us to fight temptation in our own flesh to sin. Uh, and so, man, praise the Lord that, that the truth is hidden in our hearts so that we might not sin against the Lord. And so there is so much strength to be had. But you're right, Craig, the time to get that strength is not in the crisis necessarily, although God in his mercy gives us supernatural grace uh, to, to sustain ourselves in trial. But but the normal operation of the word is that we feed, feed, feed on it to be made strong for what God has waiting for us and what we walk ourselves into. And I think that strength is not only important as we kind of look at the example of the word being the bread of life, and we know that, that bread and food gives us energy and sustains us and, and allows us to literally live. And I think yep. that there is a, a an obvious example there in how the word then sustains us and gives us energy to live spiritually. But I think right. the other issue that oftentimes is getting lost, and, and we see this particularly in a growing level within Christianity, particularly in the West, where there's technology that's demanding our attention and so many things that the enemy can use to distract us. And I think the problem is that oftentimes we find people that know God, or more accurately put, know of God, but yeah. don't necessarily know God. And yes. that, that's a, that's a, a, a quandrum that, that many face that perhaps do so unawares, meaning they go to church on Sunday, they they certainly acknowledge God's existence. If you ask them a thing or two, they can tell you a little bit about God, but not in an intimate way, meaning they know of him but don't know him. And I I wonder if also that goes back to this this core issue of biblical illiteracy. Yeah, correct. Yeah, because if you the the good news is um that the, the scriptures point us to a person, right? They point us to the Lord and they point us specifically to Christ. And so in him is life, um, and that life was the light of men, right? John 1 talks about that. Um, and so this is eternal life, John 17, that we that, that we might know God and know his son whom he sent. So it's about relationship, right? Um, the gospel is pointing us to a personal relationship with Christ as we turn away from ourselves and our sin. And as we turn to the living God, turn to Christ and put our trust in him, we're putting our trust in a person. And not just a set of rules in the Bible, but the Bible pointing us to that relationship and, um, and, and he becomes then, as you know, Craig, and the Psalms just explode this. He becomes our rock and our refuge and our strength, our stronghold, our fortress, um, and all that we need. And so, uh, with the word pointing us to the Lord, that's where we find our strength is in that relationship, uh, with him. And that's good news, right? Because we live in an isolated world too, not just a biblically illiterate world. But we live in a, in, in a relationally isolated world now, right? With all of the social media making us lonelier and lonelier and more and more isolated, uh, there's just a greater need for us to be taking people back to God's word to, to take them to the Lord Jesus Christ, the good shepherd of their souls. So I think you're right, Craig, to connect. The, the rise of biblical illiteracy has, has led to a rise of uh, spiritual isolation, and, uh, and and those can feed on on each other in really um, in really harmful ways. But that's where we got to take people back to the good news, right, of the gospel. Absolutely. With us today, Dr. Kent Dresdo, senior pastor of North Creek Church of Walnut Creek. If maybe you're new to the San Francisco Bay Area and looking for a new church home, we invite you to check out North Creek Church of Walnut Creek. Run through, if, if you would, Pastor, briefly the service times. Yeah, so we have two different services uh, that meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and then at 1045. Um, and so we would invite anybody to attend. Uh, the services are open to all. And then we have um, adult groups that meet at the same time. We call them life stage groups that meet on both those services. <clears throat> and we always make sure that people are invited to those as well. We have all kinds of ministries for families uh, from the nursery I just found out we had 42s, 42-year-olds in our two-year-old classroom. We are packed out with kids, but praise the Lord for all the life. And, and we're trying to figure out how to care for them best we can. And, and, then, uh, and then just you know, ministries all the way up with uh, children's, junior high, high school, college. We have a really vibrant and booming singles ministry, too. Praise the Lord for the, the folks in the church. 
who are in that place in life. They are powerhouses for ministry in the church and then all the way up to our senior saints as well. So on Sundays, we want to encourage people to join us for the worship service and then also hang around for fellowship too um, and, and just join what God is doing here. It's God's work, not ours. We say that all the time. He's leading. We're responding. We say that all the time. And so uh, praise the Lord for the work going on here. Lots of exciting things happening. Again, check out North Creek Church, located at 2303 Ignacio Valley Road in Walnut Creek, online at northcreek.org. Pastor Dr. Kent Desno, we sure appreciate your time today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Craig. I really appreciate it. Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. Follow along with me in God's word. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before Jesus, she asked him for something. (laughs) I love that. I'm just asking you for one thing, right? Here it is. He asked her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. A modest request. Jesus answered, you do not know what you were asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. I just got to tell you, in the gospel of Matthew, whenever someone says we're able to do it, this is just know that they can't do it. Okay. So it's a theme in Matthew. And by the way, it's a theme in your life. The moment that you think that you're able to do something, be assured God will remind you that your ability is not found in yourself. So Jesus said to them, verse 23, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers, but Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as they went out to Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, this is different than the mom's request, isn't it? Have you noticed that Jesus is asking again, what do you want me to do for you? A very different request. Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. And immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Our text is shorter this week. It's framed by three smaller units. Do you see that there in your Bible? I mean, it's pretty apparent, isn't it? The the first scene is with Jesus predicting his uh, death and resurrection. Second scene is the mother's question regarding her two sons. Third scene with the two blind men on the way out of Jericho. But the arrangement is actually geographic in nature. I just want to give you some context for why this sermon is arranged the way it is. It's arranged because of careful attention, I hope, to the context. And so... The first point to make here with regard to the first scene is that the way up to Jerusalem is the way to suffer. The way up is to suffer. Some context is helpful here because the Bible gives us it. Verse 17, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them. So here is Jesus in context textually talking about what it means to have that previous statement in chapter 20 be true of him. So look at the previous statement in verse 
16 of chapter 20. So the last will be first and the first last. In the flow of this chapter, Jesus is now going to show how that's true of him. He's not calling you to something that he himself is not doing. He's calling you to something that he himself is modeling. He doesn't, by the way, as a a result of that, if you remember last week's passage, the main point of the passage just before that is, don't grumble and don't begrudge other laborers in the harvest. Stop holding grudges. Stop grumbling about other laborers in the harvest. About their rank in, with what they deserve to be paid. So insofar as this section, this scene in verses 17 through 19 follows after the previous scene, then what we can learn here is Jesus is modeling what it means for someone to put themselves last. You, you could say this. Jesus didn't grumble to the father for his labor that he was called to do. He didn't begrudge the father for sending him into the harvest, you could say. On the contrary, Jesus, according to Psalm 40, verse 8, delighted to do the father's will. He didn't do it grudgingly, like, oh, I'll go serve in this church, but I'm going to do it and grumble about it. Or he didn't, he didn't say like, I'll do it. I totally disagree with it, but I'll do it. He didn't say that either. He Psalm verse 40, Psalm 40 verse 8 says that Jesus delighted to do the Father's will. Like from his heart, he conformed his will to the Father's. In this way, Jesus is the ultimate last, whom the Father would make the ultimate first. So context is helpful here, textually speaking. This otherwise, this chapter looks like a jumbled mess of random scenes. I mean, just look at Matthew 20. It just looks like a random collection of stuff. But what I want you to see is careful attention to the context ties all of it together along this thread. Now, I also want you to recognize, too, another layer of context, and that's geographic context. The last time that Matthew told us where Jesus was, geographically, was where? This is a time for you to do some homework. Don't look at me. Look at your Bibles or look at your phone, whatever you're doing. And and go back, kind of let your eyeballs drift backwards past chapter 20 and find where the last geographic marker was in the gospel of Matthew. Where was Jesus last time he was located somewhere geographically? Go. Don't look at me. You're not going to get any work done. Look at your Bible. So you're going back to where? Look at chapter 19 and verse what? Yeah, verse one. Verse one. Some of you are still looking at me. That's greatly mystifying to me. I can't figure out why you just, I'm telling you to look at your Bible and you're like, I I can't figure it out. Maybe, Maybe this is what I need to do with you people. Look at me and then you'll look at your Bible. That's probably what's going on. So... Um, I, I just want you to look at your Bible. Okay, so look at Matthew 19, verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee, that's to the north, and he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed different people there. Now, here's what I want you to see geographically, and that's, I know it's a hard map to see, but you get the orientation of it, right? This is in Israel, and so this is... Um, the Sea of Galilee to the north, and then down south at the very bottom, you can barely see the Dead Sea. Do you see that? The Jordan River kind of runs from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea, and Samaria is, uh, is right where you might think it is today, right here. Okay, so that's Samaria. And so Jesus is following from Galilee, Matthew 19. He would have come down here, and Luke tells us, Luke 9, that Jesus was going to pass through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem for the last time, but the Samaritans stopped him and wouldn't let him pass through. That's where James and John want to call down thunder and lightning, fire from heaven, and burn up that city. I mean, that's bad, by the way. So, so then Jesus bends out to Scythopolis, which is where most Jewish folks would have gone on their journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem for a festival. They would not have gone through Samaria. They would have bypassed Samaria to the east, and they would have come down here to the region of Perea. 
So Perea is where Jesus is at in Matthew 19. Look at your Bible again. I'm looking at you to see if anyone's looking at me still. Okay. Yeah, see? There they are. Jesus is in Perea, walking down for the last time from Galilee. He gets denied in Samaria. He's coming down through Perea, and he's teaching his disciples all along the way. Now, look at chapter 20, verse 17. The next geographic marker is Jesus, not just in Perea, but where? As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. So let me show you where he is right now. Now he's like right in this zone right here. He's, he's making a right turn. So he's going south in Perea, and now he's, he's going west. He's turning toward Jerusalem. And by the way, this little ascent right here, this little, this little walk right here is very steep at different points up. So to go from the Jordan Rift Valley up to Jerusalem is a climb. And we're going to talk more about that because it factors into the life of Christ. This is the part of the gospel that I love because now we get like geography and topography and time markers and the gospels get really particular about lining out the life of Christ for you as we come into his last week, which is called the what week? The Passion Week. That's what starts in chapter 21. So Jesus is heading up to Jerusalem. You see where that is now on the map. I hope that context is helpful to you, both textual context and geographic context, because now Jesus is very close to his crucifixion, like within days of the Passion Week. And he's giving this third and final prediction of his death and resurrection here in verses 17 through 19. Now, you know that Jesus, look at your Bible, it says third prediction of his death, and that's true. So, we know that uh, Jesus had already made a prediction about his suffering, but now he's getting more particular in this third prediction and final one. He says that he's going to be delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes, otherwise called the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious body of the day. And so he's going to be delivered up to them to be condemned. The word delivered. Do you see that there? That word can also mean betrayed. So now Matthew's giving you more information. Jesus could very well be betrayed by someone into the hands of the Sanhedrin. A little bit more clarity as to how this Passion Week is going to unfold. Notice, though, the new information and all new is in verse 19, where he's going to be delivered from the Jewish religious authorities over to the Roman religious authorities or the Gentiles. But every Jewish person back then would have understood Gentiles to mean Romans. And so delivered over to the Romans to be crucified. Only the Romans could crucify someone. And so the disciples didn't know this form of execution was waiting for him. Jesus had twice before said he's going to be killed. The son of man is going to be killed. And now here he's going to be crucified. That's a big step up for them. Like, whoa, if you're crucified, that means that a lot has to happen between when they hear that and when they get there to Jerusalem. A lot. A lot does happen. That's what I can't wait to get into with you and the balance of the gospel. Mocked. That word in the text means to be made fun of. So it's a lie. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie. Words do a ton of damage, and they inflict damage on the Messiah. It also can mean to make a fool of or to ridicule publicly. The word flogged, that is, there's more than one word for flogging in the Greek New Testament. It's a rare term here. But it's the more common term for flogging, which represents the, one of the most exquisite tortures that the Romans could execute on a criminal. And we'll talk more about that later. But, but Jesus is being modest here. He's using the, common, the, the, less, the more common term for flogging. He's being a little bit modest compared to what actually happens to him. And then crucified, I've already told you, this is the first time that he states by what means he's going to be killed, and this would have landed like a bomb on his men. I mean, this is, unima this is like an unimaginable end. And, well, I'm not going to steal thunder from the cross, but, um, but I want you to hold that 
in abeyance, that verse 19 is going to be striking in its predictive precision. And then he's raised on the third day. And now that's been the consistent refrain of all three of the predictions. And it seems to be missed each time by the disciples. On the other side of the resurrection, as you move into the gospel of Acts, they will never miss it again. Gospel preaching will always center on not just the death of Christ, but on the resurrection of Christ. And so they miss it here. They won't miss it forever. Here, here actually, there's no response in verse 19, right? I mean, they just, Jesus says what he says. He'll be raised on the third day, and that's it. No response, right? I mean, that seems strange. The previous prediction, the disciples are greatly distressed. The first prediction, Peter says, it's never going to happen to you, Lord. Here, there's no response, right? Wrong. The response is scene two. There is a response. <laughs> oh my goodness, what a response. The point being of, of the second scene and the response to Jesus's first scene is that Jesus is trying to get them to understand the way down, the way to humble yourself is to serve, is to serve. The way down is to serve. Now, I just got to tell you, you, you probably smiled a little bit when you read verse 20 because the mom is in rare form. I mean, this is like, do you know what a helicopter mom is? Helicopter parent? <laughs> it's biblical. <laughs> like it's in the Bible. I mean, this is, this is amazing what this one's, I mean, this is the ultimate mom move. I mean, these men are grown men. And this mom steps in. Now, I, 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 we can joke about her, but man, this woman's got some chutzpah. I mean, this woman's got some guts to do this. So you're, you're going to meet her someday in glory. And you're going to want to ask her about this because this is an amazing moment. She's the star of the show here. What a woman. And I'm just telling you, like, this is so great that her sons have her play a star role in, in probably one of the most pivotal moments in the gospel of Matthew. They give it away to their mom, which is great. Way to go, kids. I mean, she's not asking Jesus to make her kids the star of the school play, is she? She's not asking Jesus to make her kids the star of the sports team. She's asking Jesus to make her kids second and third in command of the eternal kingdom. That's shooting for the stars. I love this mom. The mother of the sons of Zebedee, the mother of the sons of thunder. Do you wonder where the sons got her from? They got her from this mama right here. I mean, this woman is amazing. And what's more amazing is the unbelievably bad timing of it all. In verse 20, I don't know if you've noticed, verse 20 comes after verse what? 19. She, she forms a response to Jesus's prediction. And her response is, hey, I know you're going to die. <laughs> but can we skip past that? Can, can we get to the part where you actually glorify my sons? I mean, it's almost unbelievable what she's doing here. Was she not listening to what the Savior had just said? Unbelievably bad timing. But is it unbelievably massive hubris, though? It feels like it. When you come into your kingdom, can you put my son at the right and at the left hand? That just sounds like massive amount of hubris from this woman. But I actually don't think so. Um, what seems to be the case, I don't think is the case. She approaches Jesus how? L look carefully at verse 20. The mother of the sons of Zebedee comes up to him and does what? Kneels before him. She's in a posture of worship. She is in a posture of lowering herself. She gets down on her knees. She is pursuing the way down. So let, let, let me just have you focus now on verse 20, this, this amazing woman that I know we've kind of teased. Now I'm going to turn the corner. She is amazing. We find her again at the cross. 
She's one of several women who's there at the cross with Jesus when he's dying. Turn to Matthew 27, verse 56. We don't want to steal thunder from later here, but do you see who else is around the cross? Verse 55 says there's, there's many women who are there, but verse 56 calls out several, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Do you see that? So those are the three women. Now, when you cross-reference this, at the cross, here's what you find. Mark says that there's three women there too. Mary Magdalene, which syncs up with Matthew. Mary, the mother of James, the younger, Mark says, and Joseph, Joseph or Joseph. And then a third woman named Salome. So if you're thinking to yourself, well, probably then in Matthew 20, verse 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee Her name probably is what? Salome. Now, Luke doesn't comment on specific names of women, so let's skip to John. John says that Mary Magdalene was there in a different ordering because John has a different focus. And then he also lists Mary, the wife of Clopas, who, if you want to go do your own work, is kind of collaborating with Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. And then she also calls out, or he also calls out that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there at the cross, so Jesus' mom. And then he throws in this word, Mary's sister, which makes Salome who? Mary's, the mother of Jesus, sister, which makes, come back to Matthew 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee comes up to Jesus. Who's the mother of the sons of Zebedee? It's Jesus's aunt, which makes James and John Jesus's cousins. In a, in a Jewish context, I just want you to know, we would call that nepotism, right? That's what we would call that here. <clears throat> you cast the first stone at Jesus for that one. In a Jewish context, actually, What this would mean is when someone in the extended family is exalted to royalty, it's very natural and it's to be expected that the nearest of kin would be brought up into the throne room and function basically as princes. What is Mary, or excuse me, Mary's sister, what is Salome, what is the mother of the sons of Zebedee doing here? Is this massive hubris? No, it's a natural expectation. Jesus, you're... You know, your cousins, James and John, like, <clears throat> I'm, I'm assuming that you're going to put them at your right hand and your left, right? Aren't you going to do that? She's rattled by his teaching. And so she's just asking that the assumption that's inborn in this context is still in play. This is why you need to learn your Bible more. Because you can misread this passage and assume that this mother is just filled with pride And I don't know that's necessarily the best reading. I think it's a fair assumption, actually, which is why Jesus doesn't correct her necessarily. He does. What does he say? What does he say? Look at your Bibles again. I mean, you know, Jesus answers verse 22. You don't know what you're asking for, Salome. Hey, Aunt Sal, like you're you're asking for something. I don't know if you know what you're asking for. My cousins, you don't want to have happen to them what you think is going to happen to them. First, before the crown comes the cross. You just want the crown. But the crown only comes as you take up your cross. They will drink this cup. And then after that, it's not my job, Jesus says, about who sits where in the kingdom. I am... 
I think there's more surprises waiting for us in Matthew, of which this may be the first for you. We need to pay more careful attention to the things that have been written. And so the ultimate mom move is the ultimate mom move. And then the ultimate kid move actually really is the ultimate kid move. The boys say, we're able. This, is un- this really is unbelievable pride. I mean, they should know better by now, but they don't. And by the way, we should know better by now. We're so surprised when Jesus calls us to carry our cross. We're so surprised that we have to go on the road marked with suffering. Like we're shocked that, that Jesus would call us to have a cross to bear. I mean, we do find out that um, it was the kids that put their mom up to it. You want to know how you know? Because um, Jesus says there in verse 23, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared for by my father. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers, not the mother. They knew that they, the two brothers put the mom up to it. This is the ultimate kid move, by the way. You know, you can imagine James and John. Hey, bro, why don't you go ask Jesus if I can sit next to him in the kingdom? And then John says, I'm not going to ask him. You ask him. And then John says, oh, come on. I'm not going to do that. That would be dumb. Listen, let's do this. Let's go have mom ask. Jesus can't turn mom down. She's always liked Aunt Sal, right? Like this, let's, let's go do that, that plan instead. But everybody saw through it, including Jesus. The parallel account says that James and John themselves asked Jesus the question, which is tantamount to them asking indirectly through the mom here. And I just want you to know, um, the net effect of this is, practically for us, is um, woe to the man who ranks disciples among the body of Christ. Woe to the man who ranks other Christians in the church. When, when you seek out higher rank than others in the church. You want to know what that is? That is unbelievable pride. It's something that you must repent of. You want to know what else that kind of unbelievable pride does? It stirs up a lot of anger in other people. It makes other people unbelievably angry. Oh, I'm sorry. No, very believably angry. The, the word indignant, do you see that there in verse 24? Indignant is, is, is a really rare word for anger, not used many places in the New Testament. In fact, I think it's only used here. And, and <clears throat> so it's not what we would co- commonly think of as anger. It means indignant. And it's almost like with some kind of cause. Well, yes, for sure. There's a cause. The the 10 were to some degree not rebuked, but continued to be instructed by Jesus with regard to their being indignant at James and John. Fascinating, isn't it? Because one of the other 10 was Peter, who back after the first prediction was the one who popped off and said that everybody else can't do it, but I'll stand up for you. (laughs) Ranking. Ranking each other. Ranking yourself. The good thing is the disciples never do this again, right? It must be more inborn than we know. This comparing ourselves to each other. I mean, they're doing it in the presence of Jesus. And so, what a bunch of kids Jesus is dealing with. This would be an an example of childishness, not childlikeness. 
childlikeness, Matthew 18, at the beginning of this discourse is to humble yourself like a little child. But this, this is childishness, insisting on who's most important. And so Jesus, for his part, issues the ultimate Jesus move. There's the ultimate mom move. There's the ultimate kid move. There's the ultimate Jesus move. What's stated here in this passage is really the major point of this section, Matthew 18 through 20. The whole section here of largely discourse, all three chapters are summarized now in these three verses from 26 to 28. In fact, these verses are so important that commentators over in Mark's gospel say that this section of Mark's gospel is the very heart of his gospel. In Mark 10, 45 says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's verse 28, Matthew chapter 20. So this little section here is super important. Listen, here's the reason why. It's the last thing Jesus says in his public ministry. From here, he'll go into his passion week. His earthly ministry is closing down here in this narrative. And so his teaching here, his last statement in verse 28 here, represents the climax, not just of Matthew 18 through 20, but of Matthew 1 through 20. His whole earthly ministry is summarized by Matthew 20, verse 28, and then comes across. This is the climax of his teaching. Humble yourself and serve, and I will humble myself and serve by dying for you. I'll die for you so that you can serve others. Let me, let me say it this way. One of the most significant pages in Jesus' entire life and ministry is turning on this verse. That's how important this verse is. 26 through 28, 28 in particular. Really, this is his central concern for the Christian life, which is really the central concern for your life. It's going to become, as a result, our Christmas passage for the next two Sundays. Where is Christmas in verses 26 through 28? It's in there. Where is it? 28. What's the Christmas word? Jesus, the Son of Man, what? Came. There's Christmas. So for the next two Sundays, I'm going to skip this passage right now, and we're going to come back to it on the 17th in an abbreviated format because we have a Christmas service. And then on the 24th, Christmas Eve, I'm going to hit it again so that we can sound the gospel from this central point in this gospel. Praise the Lord for how God has providentially timed this text for all those people that you're going to invite and I'm going to invite for the next two Sundays. I mean, I think that's Christmas. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And so let me draw your attention as a result then to Matthew's last scene in this chapter. I'm going to leave that, that center point for the next two weeks, but let me come now for the last few minutes to the last part of the chapter, the last scene in verses 29 through 34. The way up is to suffer. The way down is to serve. Last of all, the way out is to see. Jesus is coming out of Jericho. He's crossed the Jordan River. He's days away from the Passion Week in, the life of, in his own life. And he meets these two blind men. Now, Mark and Luke highlight one of these men. Mark calls him Bartimaeus. So blind Bartimaeus. Matthew highlights that there was another man, two blind men. Jesus has healed the blind man before in Matthew. So, so is Matthew just being re repetitive here? I mean, it's, it's a fair question. Like, why is Jesus mentioning another blind man being healed? We've already, we already know he can do that. Check the box and let's move on to something different or more exciting, says the American reader. Well, the reason why it appears here is because Jesus actually did it at this point in time. Number one. Number two, 
It's actually pointing at you. This is about you. The healing of the two men is included at this point as an illustration of the disciples' inability to see the point. It's also um, an illustration of us. We just, for some reason, we, as followers of Christ, we cannot figure out that the Christian life really is not about us. We'll say it, but it's just so hard to live it. Or, or put, it, put it another way, the disciples are blind. Put it another way, it seems fair to say that the Bible's trying to tell us that many of us are too. We're just not able to see the point of the Christian life. Do me a favor in this passage. Know this, to really see your life, you have to recognize that you can't see much about your life. We don't see spiritual matters like we, as well as we think we do. We don't read other people's hearts very well. You don't even read your own heart very well. Notice these men are not just blind, they're poor. The disciples are poor too. They do not have any hope of improving their condition on their own. And neither do we. We who have a claim on Jesus, we who are following Jesus, I mean, we, we will say that we follow the Lord and that we're looking to follow him, but we'll go day after day after day without sensing the need for mercy. You're on autopilot, man. I'm on autopilot. There are times when we're very dependent and very driven to our knees, where we are very prone to cry out, cry out more than once, repeatedly cry out, I can't see. I can't do it. I'm not able. Do you see the disciples thought they were able? And these poor blind men are trying to preach to them. You aren't able. You can't see. You desperately need grace to really see in your life. Let me, let me say it like this. You will never see in your life. You will never see spiritual realities until you recognize and own that you can't see. And then to really see in your way in life, you have to recognize that the world cannot help you see. Look at the crowd. Look at the crowd. What do they want to do with people who are trying to get to Jesus? They push them aside. They tell them that you're not important. They tell you that you can't get to him. They tell you that he doesn't care for you. They tell you that he doesn't want to see you right now. And so, so many of us want to listen to the world and augment what we get from the word of God with what we get from the world, but the world is fundamentally opposed to what Jesus is accomplishing in this narrative and in your life. To really see in your life, or let me say it like this, let me say it like this. You will never see in your life if you're looking to the world to see. And then last of all, to really see eternal life, recognize that only Jesus can make you see. We only have one hope, brothers and sisters. Not, listen to me, not just to be saved. That's true but to see anything at all. 
to really see the glories of eternal life that will draw you like a gravitational pull to glory is to recognize that only Jesus can make you see. You will live your whole life through crying out to God for Christ to have mercy on you. Or you should. Do you really think that you're able? I mean, your job. Do you really think you're able in your job, in the home with your children? Do you really think that you're able to parent? And you say, of course not. Of course not. No, I understand that. I don't really know if I'm interested in what you say. I'm interested in how you're living. So say what you want to say. If you're on autopilot in your parenting, you are saying, verse 22, you're not saying, Verse 30. Do you know this is why we celebrate Christmas? I gotta be done. We, we celebrate Christmas for this reason. Jesus came to earth to be born, to live a perfect life and die a sinful death, a sinless death. Why? To open our blind eyes. Why else? To show us mercy. Why else? So that we can truly live our life knowing what it means to serve from the heart like Christ who delighted to do the Father's will. He didn't grudgingly do the Father's will. He didn't grumblingly accomplish the Father's will. He, from the inner man out, he delighted to do the Father's will. The Christian life, you could say to him, was sheer delight all the way to the cross. And do you want to know something truly unbelievable? Whenever you ask Jesus for mercy, he will always give it to you. The mercy of mercy, that whenever you cry out for mercy, and crying out means from your heart, he will always give it. That is the mercy of mercy. Anyone who calls out to Jesus Christ will find him more ready to save you than you are to cry out for salvation. Anyone who goes to him to heal, to be forgiven, to be saved, to be sanctified, to be helped in time of need, anytime you cry for mercy, he's more ready to grant it than you are to ask for it. So if you want to become a Christian at salvation, or if you want to grow as a Christian, go to Jesus like these blind men. Go to Jesus like these poor in spirit men and ask him for mercy in your sin and in your need, the way out of your blindness to sin, the way out of your desperate condition of need. The only way out is to cry out for mercy from Jesus. And then you have his promise that he will set you free. Dr. Kent Dresdo, the senior pastor of North Creek Church of Walnut Creek. This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to your church's website, to Church of the Week at SalemSF.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor and church, along with a link to the website and email to Church of the Week at SalemSF.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.